welcome back everyone. Uh, my name is Yusuf Awaiti, a health promotion specialist with UFHR Wellness. Um, and uh, we're going continuing on our wellness talk series and uh, our monthly video podcast series where we talk and meet with subject matter experts from across UF and UF Health uh, and talk with them about the latest, the latest in their field. Today we have uh, Dr. Ashby Walker with us to talk about diabetes awareness and prevention. Um, and Dr. Di uh, Dr. Walker is an elected member of the American Diabetes Association National Health Disparities Committee and the Chronic Disease and Conditions Priority Area Workgroup uh, of uh, 2017 and 2021 Florida State Health Improvement Plan. Dr. Walker's research as a medical sociologist focuses on type one diabetes and the role that the social capital plays in determining health outcomes. Um, and she was selected by the Diabetes Forecast Magazine as people to know for 2019. So welcome Dr. Walker, and thank you for taking the time to talk with me today and share with us your expertise. Did I miss anything in the introduction that would be relevant to our discussion today that you wanted to share? Well, first of all, I wanna say thank you so much for having me and for taking time to raise awareness about uh, diabetes during Bluevember. Uh, the thing that I would add is as we pause to remember the month of November as National Diabetes Awareness Month, the theme that was set forth um, by the International Diabetes Federation was access to care. So I really appreciate being your guest today. And um, I think you covered the intro great. The only other thing I'm working on right now that's probably relevant to what we're gonna talk about, I'm, I'm really happy to be able to partner with the American Diabetes Association's um, Health Equity Now movement, which is another thing that I'm working on. And we're drafting a bill of rights for people living with diabetes related to health equity. So um, we, we appreciate any visibility. Uh, about diabetes this month. Fantastic. Um, and that sounds like uh, fantastic work. And I actually would like to kind of jump into the question of health equities and health disparities and say, um, based on your research and your, and your experience, what are some of the health disparities related to type 1 diabetes? Um, and a, a follow-up, if I could, what are some of the main factors to these uh, disparities? Well, well, we'll start talking about type 1 diabetes. And so type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune disease that impacts about 1 in 500 people in the United States. Mm -hmm. When you look at type 1 diabetes, it is fatal without insulin. And this disease globally is still fatal uh, in many parts of the world where access to insulin is not a guarantee. And even within the United States, uh, we see insulin rationing, and we see real, real barriers related to getting this life requiring drug. So for type one diabetes, for people living with type one, people um, have different outcomes based on socioeconomic status, and also race and ethnicity. And so related to socioeconomic status for people living with type one in the di um, type one diabetes in the United States, there are uh, increased risks for uh, all of the negative outcomes we would want to avoid in type one based on SES. There is increased morbidity, there's an increased uh, comorbidities, there's increased mortality rate. And then also with, so, uh, with race and ethnicity, independent uh, from SES, 
we see disparities in outcomes for Black and Hispanic individuals living with type 1, especially uh, for non-Hispanic Black communities. We see elevated risk for preventable death, and we see an underutilization of really vital diabetes technologies like insulin pumps and continuous glucose monitors. So there's a lot of different disparities in type 1 diabetes, but they center on what we call SES, our socioeconomic status, and then also race and ethnicity, which is related more to structural racism and inequality. Wow, that's yeah, that's very deep. Um, it's it's scary to think that in, in such a developed country such as ours that this still is such a such a problem, and there are many different factors like the SES and the you know um, you know economic behaviors, uh, race uh, racism that may pe some people may experience. Um, and, and that it still is, um, uh, could, for some, could still be considered a fatal, um, fatal disease. Um, in your research, you focus on the health inequity when it comes to type 1 diabetes. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about your specific research and, and points that you want to highlight from the work that you've done so far? Yeah, well, really, I want my career to be dedicated to improving the lives of people living with diabetes and reducing health disparities, not just for type 1, but also type 2. For um, people living with type 1 diabetes, it's recommended that they see an endocrinologist four times a year to optimize outcomes. So they are um, guided towards seeing an endocrinologist every three months. We know from an enormous body of literature that this does not always happen, especially for adults living with type 1 diabetes. And there's a myriad of barriers, but especially for working poor communities, uh, taking time off work and losing wages to go for a preventative visit with an endocrinologist is challenging. We also did some research last year that was published in Diabetes Care that suggests people with type 1 diabetes from underserved communities um, experience shame when they see endocrinologists. So sometimes they don't go see an endocrinologist by choice. So not just because it's too far, or it's too hard, but because they don't want to go see the adult endocrinologist. So a lot of time what happens in type one diabetes care, which is similar to many other chronic diseases, is underserved communities rely on a primary care provider that they trust for their chronic disease management. And so we have implemented here at the University of Florida in concert with Stanford University, a project ECHO program, and ECHO stands for Extension for Community Healthcare Outcomes. It's a model that was founded by the University of New Mexico, and it's a provider empowerment model. So um, it's been replicated all over the United States by UNM and all over the world for different areas of chronic disease management, but we're doing this in diabetes to try to reach communities that don't go see an endocrinologist regularly, but they go see their PCP. So we train the primary care providers and how to do diabetes care in the primary care setting. We also offer them uh, a diabetes support coach, which is a cross between a community health worker and a peer supporter. And we targeted in our program, federally qualified healthcare centers, F. QHCs. And if you don't know what an FQHC is, a lot of people are unaware of FQHCs, but they are 
um, health centers in the United States that are delivering care to 30 million people every year that either don't have health insurance or who tend to be underserved. Um, they're covered by Medicaid. They face a number of incredible um, risks with their health. So we were very intentional when we developed our Project ECHO program. We wanted to target FQHCs because that's where underserved people go for care. And so we're doing this with Stanford. And right now we have about 40 FQHCs participating in our Project ECHO program across California and Florida. We're training the primary care providers. But I think more importantly, for the research I've done specifically is providing that diabetes peer support coach is a really powerful tool to reduce shame and stigma and to build community that is so vital to thrive with diabetes. So right now that's most of my focus is related to the Project ECHO program, but I have studied peer support models in diabetes for over a decade now. Wow, that's um, that's interesting. That's um... It sounds like a wonderful work, and I'd, I'm, I'd love to kind of look more into it after uh, today's session. Um, but, but I'm curious, as we're talking, that some individuals uh, would feel shame going to see an endocrinologist, but would not feel the same thing when it comes to um, the primary care provider. Um, just wondering, um, and then it may be the focus of your research, but I'm just wondering why, why is that? Well, one of the things that we found in our research, we really intentionally tried to recruit people from underserved communities to ask them what okay. they perceive as the greatest barriers to endocrinology care access, and then also to um, utilizing. So not just access, but do they use what they have access to? And we, we ask questions related to barriers to technology use, because that's another big disparity we see. And one of the things that I would love to come across loud and clear in this podcast for everyone who wants to support people living with diabetes, we have to recognize that there's a tremendous amount of shame and stigma surrounding a diagnosis of diabetes. When you look at how the American culture in general, and there's research on this, perceives people who have diabetes, there is a misperception that someone caused their disease. So this is an enormous misperception in type one because type one's an autoimmune disease, but even in type two diabetes that is more associated with lifestyle factors, um, there are genetic risks for type two diabetes that are beyond somebody's control. And there's so many things in our built environment that exacerbate our risk for diabetes, especially for people from underserved communities. So in general, before we talk about endocrinologists, there is a barrier for people living with diabetes every day as they navigate life because they're perceived as causing their disease. So one of the most important things we can do is to loud and clear debunk that. Nobody caused their diabetes and we need to come around communities living with diabetes and just provide the resources and the support that's needed. Now that said, if you do um, live with diabetes, you know diabetes, whether it's type one or type two is incredibly difficult to manage. Even if somebody is doing everything they can to try to manage these diseases, it is very difficult um, type one diabetes there is never a day somebody doesn't have to think about their insulin, 
have to think about very intentional decisions that those of us who don't live with diabetes, we just take for granted. And so the um, focus of the endocrinology visit is often on HbA1c values. So if that's the centerpiece of the visit, if somebody doesn't have optimal A1C, uh, there's really a feeling, it was described in the research as like going to the principal's office, uh, mm -hmm. very punitive, like I'm in trouble. And they used a lot of examples of overt shaming that happened. And why would someone trust their PCP more? I want to tackle that question. If you look at FQHCs in the United States, it's the most diverse group of providers that exist. So okay. providers that are delivering care at FQHCs tend to be diverse, meaning there's more Black providers at an FQHC. There's more Hispanic providers at FQHCs. There's more people at the FQHC that speak many different languages. The providers mirror the communities. And therefore, I think that there is greater trust because the FQHC is in the local neighborhood. It's within walking distance of where people live and the providers look like them and they've had many of the same life experiences. So the FQHC provider has a greater uh, legitimacy with their patients than an endocrinologist that is, I think, less known and outside the community. And that's just one, one way I'll point to differences. Perfect. Yeah. No, I, so I asked, um, and I, because I, when you said it, it resonated and it made sense uh, that there are many different factors that someone who's living with uh, uh, diabetes, um, whether it's type one or type two or pre-diabetes, um, there is this um, connotation that sometimes people may make them feel like that it, that it was their cause, that it was their fault. Um, and it didn't resonate with me until you said it. Um, and, and the fact that, that they're able to connect with more with their primary care provider who they're more likely to have seen for long periods of times or to have seen more regularly than an endocrinologist who maybe they see once or, you know, uh, the recommendation is four times per year. Um, that, it, it definitely makes sense. And uh, there is certainly um, um, a, a, a positive push, I think, with this month's uh, focus for the National Diabetes Campaign with it being um, on access and making sure that we try to kind of overcome uh, or um, remove some of those barriers that they're being caused by community members or you know taking you know taking those individuals with diabetes and and really surrounding them and giving them a positive push and, and positive feedback so that they are able to access and not becoming a barrier for them to access um, better healthcare. Um, the a question that kind of relates to this a little bit and is that um, to clarify for our, our audience, um, we've mentioned kind of type one and type two. Um, there's also pre-diabetes. Uh, could you briefly explain the, the differences between them? Um, I know it, it could be a very long discussion, but just very briefly for um, an average audience member to, to understand. So first of all, just to kind of do a panoramic of the scope of diabetes because it is just tremendous. Mm -hmm. So in the United States, 34 million Americans are living with a diagnosed diabetes. And so that is a, a very significant portion of our population. And another 88 million are living with what we call pre-diabetes. And so the, the sum total of that is half of Americans either have diabetes or they have pre-diabetes. So this is a public health crisis that deserves 
our utmost attention. So when we talk about the differences, type 1 diabetes, since I started talking about that first, I'll go back to that. It's an autoimmune disease. It impacts um, fewer people than type 2 diabetes. And I think less is known about type 1. But type 1 is an autoimmune disease where there is basically a, a the pancreas is not able um, to make insulin and you have to have insulin to live with type one diabetes. Type one diabetes can be diagnosed in childhood. Historically, we called it juvenile onset. We try not to use that language anymore because type one diabetes can be diagnosed even in adulthood. And so we're trying to debunk that language use just to, to draw attention to you can, you can get type one as a child or as an adult, but it's an autoimmune disease. Type two diabetes is a disease that's related to, um, it is related to excess weight and the obesity epidemic, but I even wanna be clear about that. This is, this is referred to as a disease that's related to insulin resistance. And so it's different than type one um, in that it, it is not an autoimmune disease. Type two is not an autoimmune disease, but type two diabetes impacts a lot more people in the United States. So people, when they think of diabetes, they think of type two diabetes. Type two diabetes is usually diagnosed with a specific A1C value that's above a certain threshold. Um, Pre-diabetes. Pre-diabetes is, referring to um, people living with elevated blood glucose levels that are above normal, but they're not quite at the level where somebody who has type two diabetes is. Um, so somebody living with prediabetes has these elevated levels, not quite at the threshold of someone is type two, but it puts them at risk, not just for diabetes, but also for heart disease and stroke. Um, the good news with prediabetes is that we have tremendous programs like the Diabetes Prevention Program that we can see the impact in type 2 diabetes and prediabetes of lifestyle intervention um, really having positive outcomes. But the problem is most people living with prediabetes don't know they have it. And so they have not had someone officially make that diagnosis for them. Thank you so much for clarifying that. I think that's a, that's a very eloquent and simple way of summarizing a very, very big topic in discussion. Um, the, so November is National Diabetes Awareness Month. Um, and the focus traditionally has been on awareness and prevention, um, sometimes for pre-diabetes and type 2 diabetes. Um, but it, it could also involve uh, type 1 diabetes when it comes to um, the topic that we were talking about earlier when it comes to access and, and removing some of those barriers. Um, so the advice always revolves around kind of changing physical activity and help, you know, better healthy lifestyle behaviors. Um, in your experience, what are some uh, of suggestions that you can provide with us, whether it's in terms of awareness or prevention or access? Well, first, related to type 2 diabetes, there is so much evidence that prevention can help and, and intervention, not in, I think the way people think these like sweeping changes and really small changes that can make tremendous um, ripple effects for people's health. So when you look at the research for people living with prediabetes, just really a small percentage of excess weight loss 
has a really big impact for reducing the risk for type two physical activity. Again, um, you, you don't have to run a marathon, but having five days a week where you walk at a good pace for 30 minutes does a lot um, up for all of us, whether we live with diabetes or not. So I think one of the messages is there, there are proven programs and benefits related to um, small lifestyle changes, setting SMART goals, we call them. So not things that just feel overwhelming or insurmountable, but like what's a realistic small goal that somebody could set related to excess weight, related to increasing physical activity um, that, that can make a big difference. But one of the things that I want to go back to is the way we perceive people living with diabetes, because I actually think that discussion has to be louder than, you know, get active and look at what you're eating because there's so many, um, there are so many myths surrounding people that live with diabetes that the, the way we think about diabetes has to change. And especially as we're training up the next generation of public health professionals who often, you know, really want to focus on lifestyle intervention, if we don't first understand the stigma and shame that people live with, it, it's really hard to then develop a meaningful intervention. And so one of the things that I feel really, really strongly about from my research and from watching the power of this is implementation of community health workers and peer support models in diabetes, because, you know, we have diabetes support coaches throughout the state of Florida working with us for the ECHO program. And like a traditional community health worker, they live in the local community that we're working with. So they might be from Miami or Tampa or rural Florida, like wherever we're working. So they, they understand the geographic catchment area. They themselves might have been seen for care at an FQHC. So they walked the walk, but they also live with diabetes. And what happens when you provide platforms to bring people together who all live with diabetes, there is an immediate de-shaming that happens. Everybody feels like this just, this they can just breathe more easily because no, they're not being judged. They are around people that know how hard this is. And what we found is just providing that support. And sometimes with our grant money and our expertise, we just need to get out of the way. The community knows what they need. So being able to just provide funding for people to come together in underserved communities who all share a diagnosis of diabetes and they share strategies and they talk and they start walking together as a group, it's like catalytic what happens. And so I think our solution has to add it at its core involve people that are the stakeholders like who lives with diabetes they actually know, they have the answers like we're not the experts and so i think that that would be an important like precursor to talking about the lifestyle and intervention because there's often a very condescending tone that comes across um, even in public health uh, when when diet and lifestyle starts being talked about and if you even just look at the history of food and food voice of communities that are um, underserved. There, there is a long-standing history of systemic racism where indigenous peoples were blocked from the foods they wanted to eat and they were made to feel uh, like all these kind of evoking of stereotypes surrounding food. So I, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is there's 
so much work that has to happen before we get to wanting to talk about what somebody's eating or like how much they're exercising. And I think it starts with our own ability to say like, we are not the experts and to acknowledge our own positionality and then to really work towards community empowerment models, which work within the community's expertise rather than us thinking we have something from the outside to inject in, like us, us listening, us understanding that like the expertise comes from stakeholders. Absolutely. Yeah. And we actually have a, a similar program that's based on the diabetes prevention program. Um, and uh, we try as, as best as we can to, um, to get out of the way and just provide the resources for the individuals, the, the classes are intended. Uh, so the program is the healthy lifestyle program that's offered um, out of our office. And it's, uh, if it's a live session, it's designed so that individuals are engaging and sharing what works for them, what doesn't work for them. And we're simply just providing, here's some basic information, here's some resources. We, we talk about the SMART goals, if it's new to someone and, and how to best formulate SMART goals. Um, and then leave the, the, the work and, and the effort up and the strategies really up to each individual and each cohort to, to see what works best for them um, and, and, and go from there. And so that's been uh, the focus. And, and, I, and I'm, uh, I'm interested to hear how in the future we would be able to do kind of a peer support model. Um, uh, the programs are not designed specifically for diabetes or pre-diabetes. It's designed, as the name suggests, to, to develop just healthy healthy behaviors and healthy lifestyles, no matter where the individual may be in their own specific journey. Um, but the, you talking about the peer support model and, and that community model really seems to, it, it's connected with me and, I, and I, I'm really interested to see if, if we can implement something similar to that in, um, in the Healthy Lifestyle Program. Um, so yeah, just wanted to share that. There's not a, there's not a question behind that. Um, oh no, that, that's so, so neat to hear about other initiatives and like how can we cross pollinate like Absolutely. what we learned from other programs when we did our initial peer support randomized controlled trial like years ago when I got this little tiny pilot grant to do this our initial program at the time there was nothing to try to reach adolescents with type 1 diabetes who are from low SES households but we knew their risk for DKA and all these things were severe and yet there were no interventions. And so the first rendition of this was called All for One, um, one standing for outreach networks and education. And I recruited college students here at the University of Florida who have type one diabetes to serve as a mentor for a adolescent that's seen for care in our endocrinology clinics who was publicly insured. So just by using like the publicly insured selection criteria, um, we know that that adolescent is at risk for DKA and a lot of very serious diabetes related complications. And in that program, it was a randomized controlled trial. The adolescents in the treatment group got access to a mentor. We did social events that we kind of framed as indoor tailgating before UF sporting events inside. And we infused them with diabetes education. The parents got to meet other parents who had kids with type one diabetes, but they were all from 
um, lower SES households, which I think made everyone feel more safe and more understood, not just having the diagnosis, but having a, a similar life experience. And we would all go to the games together and provide the tickets, the um, adolescents and their mentor text every week. And then everyone got automatic SMS messaging to remember to check their blood glucose um, three times a day, which is like not that much, uh, but it was just like our base goal that we set. So we really didn't offer a biomedical intervention or a pharmaceutical product. It was like just having someone that understood your life experience. And it was profound, like that what we saw happen, not just for the adolescents, but for the college students who come to UF, we have thousands of people on this campus. They're often trying to manage type one for the first time ever completely by themselves without their parents, they developed this network of friends and peers. And so their A1C values improved too, as, as well as other things that were really important to us, like hope for the future. So after that initial pilot, I was like, this is the path that I need to kind of stay on in my career. Like now we've expanded it in ECHO to, to do this at the federally qualified healthcare um, facility. And we have diabetes support coaches, 18 of them in Florida, and there's 12 in California, and they have a standard curriculum. And, and they're, they, what they are doing, it, it, like there's no way to even describe the ripple effect of what's happening. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm not surprised to see the, the power of those social connections and just being able to connect it with people who have similar life experiences and, and going through kind of, um, uh, you know, similar situations and, and, and how they're able to connect and, and, and really, um, uh, you know, I'll, I'll take a word for it. I don't I haven't seen the result, but I'll take a word for it. The, 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 the ripple effects, as you, as you would call it, I'm not surprised to hear that at all. We hear that all the time in all of our programs that we offer here at UFHR Wellness and just as a public health professional in, in many programs, people want to connect with other individuals who have been in their shoes um, or currently going through a similar situation. Um, and, and I'm just really glad to hear that you were able to find a way to cultivate that social connection and, and to have um, positive health outcomes for the participants, whether they're the, the mentee or the mentors or just the, the peer support model. Um, so that's, that's incredible to hear. Um, if I may, um, uh, I think we already kind of touched on this a little bit, but what broader recommendations would you have for our audience in terms of um, uh, if they were interested in, in learning more, whether it's about your specific program specifically or, um, you know, learning more about how to increase access to diabetes or overcoming some of those barriers uh, as individuals with diabetes or individuals who may just want to be helpful and an additional resource? Well, for our communities at the University of Florida, we have the UF Diabetes Institute, which is an amazing um, institute and really globally recognized, especially as leading type one diabetes research. And for Blue Vember, if you go to the UFDI's website, just to start local first, yes. um, they are highlighting, we're highlighting the most important thing we could highlight, which are stakeholder stories. So I would first just encourage everyone to check out on the UFDI's website for Blue Vember this year, we kind of usurped the whole bringing in an external speaker as the expert and we asked the real experts to tell us what they wanted the world to know. 
about diabetes and it's really powerful. And you'll get to hear from students who live with diabetes right here at UF, as well as a few of the support coaches from the ECHO Diabetes Program. There's also a lot of resources through the American Diabetes Association or ADA's website. If you're interested in health equity, the Health Equity Now um, website gives you a lot of actionable links, uh, petitions you can sign, things for you to be aware of related to advocating for people living with diabetes who are underserved and who need our advocacy related to health outcomes. Um, the, the Centers for Disease Control similarly has amazing fact sheets. So if you just want to have those handy, they're beautiful, they're, you can print them out and even have them in your workspace or you could put them in a lobby just so people see the numbers because I think it's alarming if, if the general public does not even understand the risk. So having them as talking pieces and things that we can incorporate in what we're doing, I just think the basic facts are really important to disseminate. Um, for the ECHO Diabetes Program, I will say, just as a point of encouragement for all of our MPH and PhD students in public health especially, Every single research coordinator working for me here at UF is from the College of Public Health's programs, either undergraduate, I have undergraduates, I have MPH and PhD students all working on this. And it, there is a website that you, if you Googled um, Echo Diabetes UF, we have a website where you can learn more. You can see this amazing multidisciplinary team, endocrinologist, medical sociologist, um, pharmacy specialist, people from every college across campus collaborating to try to be the hub team to come alongside the FQHC. So please reach out if you want to learn more about Project ECHO, but I would just say that there's local resources and there's national. We have a college diabetes network group here at the University of Florida. It's called CDN on Instagram. I can look at their handle really quickly while I'm talking, so I say it right, but I follow them on Instagram. I'm their faculty sponsor. So the College Diabetes Network Group at UF is not just for people who have diabetes. It's for people who want to support people who have diabetes. So they do some like amazing events together. Some of them um, are just for fellowship and to, to kind of raise awareness, but it's a great, great group. And I'm looking right now for the CDN but if you look for College Diabetes Network UF, you will find their Instagram handle, and that's probably the best way to connect with them. Um, Jane is currently the president of CDN, and it's both for undergraduates, and we have graduate students too. So everyone's welcome to come to our Gators CDN chapter. Perfect. Okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely look that up and I'll include all the links of the, what you've mentioned in, in our page when we publish this. So if you're looking at this video um, on the UFHR Wellness website, you should be able to find the links kind of um, somewhere near where this video or the, or the podcast are, are located. Um, this is a topic that we could, I'm sure we could talk about for hours on end, but to, just to keep it short and, and simple, um, I want to thank you for your time today. And I want to just uh, final... It, it, do you have any final words of wisdom, uh, thoughts that you'd like to share before we close out today? Um, I would just wanna say thank you for taking time to raise awareness during November about people living with diabetes. And just to emphasize that half of Americans either have diabetes or they're living with pre-diabetes and there is no shame and blame in this. Um, this is something that we all face risk for, for a myriad of different reasons. So 
anything that we can do um, in our own personal lives to take steps to understand uh, if we have prediabetes and to take some of those initial steps as a person are hard, but I would encourage you to do that because knowledge is power. And also just to remember that people living with diabetes uh, do not need to be blamed. They need to be supported. And I just, again, appreciate you focusing on this this month. Absolutely. Well, yeah, it's the least that we can do for sure. And and um, I, and I appreciate you uh, taking the time to share with us your knowledge and your expertise. Um, and with that, we'll go ahead and end our wellness talk um, episode for this time. Uh, and I hope that today's session has been informative and valuable to all of our campus community. Um, to see all of our other wellness talk sessions, visit the UFHR wellness website at wellness.hr.ufl.edu and navigate to the wellness library from the resources tab. You can search by topic and or by dimension of wellness. Uh, thank you for tuning in and be well.